You know that curve we're all working to flatten? We've got to keep pushing because right now, America's COVID-19 curve is steeper than Italy's was at the same point. Governors all over the country have issued stay-at-home orders, effectively forcing 85 million people into their homes. The president tweets out his prescription for COVID-19, except he's not a doctor. Dr. Anthony Fauci is and publicly shuts him down because science matters. And that's why we're here. This is America Dissected. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul el Healthcare providers on the front lines are worried as the number of cases continues to rise. And as COVID begins its assault on hospitals, frontline workers are being left without personal protective equipment or PPE, which they need more than ever right now. Healthcare workers are voicing their concerns about shortages of some crucial medical supplies. Extreme shortages in the provision of and availability of uh, personal protective uh, equipment. The shortages for supplies across the board, but these N95 respirator masks in particular. Nurses are being asked to actually uh, reuse masks, including surgical masks, which provide no protection. I want to put this into perspective for you. In any other time, if resources were no issue, patients with infectious diseases like COVID-19 would be put into negative pressure rooms that suck air in to make sure that viruses don't get out. Healthcare providers going into those rooms would have to put on gowns, gloves, hairnet caps, and N95 masks. N95 masks aren't like the usual surgeon's masks we've all seen on Grey's Anatomy. Surgeon's masks are intended to keep the stuff coming out of the surgeon's mouth and nose from getting into their patient in front of them. N95 masks are designed to do the opposite, to keep stuff from the outside from getting in. But providers on the front lines right now are being forced to go without either, in the middle of one of the most serious pandemics in modern history. All of this gets back to what everyone's been saying all along. We need to keep practicing physical distancing. And that's why governors in a number of states have issued stay-at-home orders, effectively forcing all but critical personnel to stay in place. Here's my take. I think that in major cities, these stay-at-home orders are crucial. And no matter what, if there's a stay-at-home order in place... We need to abide by it. But it's not enough to save a life and destroy a livelihood. That's why we need a lot more leadership from Congress right now in the form of a relief package that puts money in people's pockets. $1,000 one time is not enough. And means testing these disbursements puts a lot of red tape on it. It's time for universal basic income. Nothing but relief will do. That's why it was frustrating to see a tweet from the president about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for treating COVID-19, even after Dr. Fauci, America's doctor, shut it down. Here's an exchange between them on Friday. I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. I would like Dr. Fauci, if you don't mind, uh, to follow up on what the president is saying. Should Americans have hope in this drug right now? The president feels optimistic about something, his feeling about it. It might be effective, but as a scientist... As we're getting it out there, we need to do it in a way as while we are making it available for people who might want the hope that it might work, you're also collecting data that will ultimately show that it is truly effective and safe under the conditions of COVID-19. Yet on Saturday, Trump tweeted this. The president tweeted about what could be a potential therapy or uh, uh, treatment for uh, COVID-19. He tweets, uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin taken together have a real chance to be one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. 
The FDA has moved mountains. Thank you. Hopefully they will both. H works better with A. International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents be put in use immediately. People are dying. Move fast. And God bless everyone. Hydroxychloroquine is a malaria medication that's been used to treat all sorts of things since it was discovered in the 1940s. Azithromycin, better known as a Z-Pak, is a common antibiotic. To be sure, both could potentially be used to treat coronavirus. But right now, there's just not enough evidence to say so for sure. The study, quote-unquote, Trump referenced was only 20 patients in one hospital in France. More importantly, it wasn't randomized. Randomization is a tool researchers use to make sure that patients on both sides of a study are similar to each other, rather than having some underlying difference that, itself, could have made a difference in the likelihood of the outcomes they're studying. What makes modern medicine quote-unquote modern is that it's evidence-based, meaning that we don't tell people to do a thing until we have rigorous, replicated studies showing safety and efficacy. 20 people in a poorly designed study in one hospital ain't it. What's worse is that by tweeting it, he signaled to people who are scared that they should be asking for this treatment from their doctors, doctors who are already overwhelmed without basic protective equipment and who are struggling to test their patients and themselves if they get exposed. More tests, less medical advice. As we tuck into our physical distancing and we watch the news about the exponential increase in COVID-19 cases going on right now, and people like me keep making predictions about what's going to happen, I want to take a step back and ask, Actually, how do epidemiologists predict what's going to happen? To get there, we're going to talk to Professor Allison Galvani, an epidemiologist and infectious disease modeler at Yale, after the break. Friends, we all know that we're facing a coronavirus epidemic, but there's another, deeper epidemic that set the stage for this one, an epidemic of insecurity. It threatens our healthcare, our housing, and our democracy. I wrote a book about it and how to treat it called Healing Politics. I hope you'll order your copy today at HealingPoliticsBook.com. So I get this question all the time. Is this going to last two months or 18 months, like some experts are predicting? I don't have an answer for you, but I want you to understand how experts come to these predictions, and we're going to meet one of those experts right now. Policymakers need accurate forecasts to understand all kinds of things, how many cases of coronavirus we expect to have, how different interventions may affect that, and what the consequences may be for limited medical supplies. So how do we do it? Modeling. Some infectious disease modelers use mathematical formulas that map the complex relationships between different factors, like how many people contact each other, how likely the virus is to spread between them, and how many will get sick and need hospital care. Using these formulas and data about what's already happened can help us to glimpse the future. Other modelers use extremely complex computer models to help us predict what might happen and also how this may affect things we may not be paying attention to right now. Professor Allison Galvani is an infectious disease modeler who's been helping to create models to forecast what's going to happen with COVID-19. She also used her modeling skills earlier this year to model how many lives we might save in America, even without a COVID-19 pandemic, if we had Medicare for all. I caught up with her on Friday. Allison, thank you so much for uh, making the time with us. Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be with you. Well, I wanted to um, to first just talk a little bit about modeling, right? There's a lot of focus now that people have on um, infectious disease modeling because, of course, you know, it seems like uh, finally getting out of our, our massive quarantine depends on it. So I, I want you to help our listeners understand what an infectious disease model is, how you think about it, and what you think they need to know about the process of putting together these models. So we use mathematical 
or computational models to represent the dynamics of transmission. We represent key compartments of infected people, susceptible people, exposed people um, in terms of equations or individuals within the computer model. And then we apply these models to evaluate the effectiveness of different intervention strategies. Mm. So just to just to to, to sort of um, break it down for folks. So I kind of think about that like Sim City. Am I right? Like is that a is that a fair approach that you sort of have this you know place uh, over time and you're sort of making different assumptions about how people are interacting and the probability of transmission of diseases based on their interactions and then trying to understand what's going to happen over time. Does that does is is that right? Yeah, it's in some ways it is very similar to a Sim City. Okay, so it's like SimCity for coronavirus. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And so you build this model and you take um, these, these various parameters and you use this model and then you're testing different interventions, right? Different things that, that we could do uh, to try and prevent the spread of, of the virus. Can you tell us about some of the interventions that you're testing in your model and what some of the impacts are? One key intervention could be what's being advocated if you're feeling unwell to stay at home. So Mm. that would reduce the transmission rate. So that's like the social distancing that we're practicing right now, or even even more stringent self-isolation if you know you've been exposed. Right, exactly. So a lot of folks are wondering, you know, are we going to have to wait until there's a vaccine? Because of course, there was a group uh, who does infectious disease modeling in London, and they pushed out a report that said that, you know, it might be 18 months. And for them, that 18 months was really the, the, the length of time for which it would take us to develop a vaccine at minimum. Do you think that those estimates are right? Uh, or do you feel like we might be able to squelch this disease before we, we actually get a vaccine for it? It all, it, it all depends on our collective action. And that's, you know, human behavior is a lot harder to predict than these probabilities of transmission given sort of static human behavior. So that part, I hesitate to to give this time frame, but while there is considerable and justified concern and we're self-isolating mm-hmm. combined with the change in climate as the U.S. Um, and other places in the world tend to become warmer, that during the summer will be our greatest chance of eliminating the virus. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then we, I think we're running the risk of the disease becoming endemic or cycling in the same way, you know, 1918 mm-hmm. flu um, virus emerged and it's still with us every year it comes back. Um, in future years, it will become less serious, um, especially if there's a vaccine. But I can imagine a situation, you know, we have a vaccine that's not perfect efficacy. You know, we haven't been able to eliminate flu viruses. So I wouldn't be surprised if it stays with us even beyond when we have a vaccine. Hmm. So so you're saying that the, the, the scenario right now that you're predicting is that um, we're going to work really hard on social isolation right now because it's so imminent. And then as it starts to fade away in the summer, 
that really is the moment that we as a species, right, get to decide whether or not we want to squelch this thing or not. And the fear is that because the number of cases are declining, um, that we're going to be a lot more lax and miss our opportunity to, uh, to, to stamp it out while we can. And then if we don't, it'll come back in the winter um, and then stay with us for a while. It won't be the, the massive influx of cases like we're seeing right now, but, um, but it'll come back sporadically even with the vaccine. Yes, that's exactly what I'm afraid mm. of. You know, one of the one of the questions that a lot of people ask about um, about these models and in the potential for transmission is um, what we're after. And I know you've done some really good work um, talking about the importance of flattening the curve, modeling out how many people get sick at the same time and what the consequences might be for our health system. Can you speak about that a little bit? Sure. That is a crucial dynamic here, I think, for this particular outbreak. So we've modeled that if this virus continues to spread at the rate it's currently spreading in the U.S., our healthcare system, specifically the um, number of ICU beds, is going to be completely overwhelmed, and we're not going to have the resources to treat the severely um, uh, ill patients. So if we can reduce the transmission rate, it both reduces the peak, so that's what the people are referring to, flattens the curve, and it also delays that peak. So we both have more time to build up our emergency capacity, and also the healthcare system will be less overwhelmed at that peak. That's a critical insight. So it's not just that we want to reduce the, the, the peak overall. It's that we want to give our health system enough time to ramp up so that the, the peak that it actually can, um, can metabolize is higher, right? And that we can deal with more patients as they come in uh, because we both had the time to ramp up and because the number of patients is smaller. That's that's an essential insight. And I don't think um, we talk enough about that. And um, do you feel like we're going far enough in terms of social distancing? And what more would you recommend based on your modeling? I I don't think that interventions, uh, the social distancing has gone far enough in some locations. I mean, that's changing by the day, though, um, in yeah. San Francisco and... Um, well, the whole state of California now um, is, it's not shelter in place, but it's stay home orders. right. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I think that that is going far enough. I mean, we don't have to completely eliminate transmission in order to reduce the peak down to the capacity of the healthcare system, but we have to do something pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you came uh, to my attention when I um, first read your work uh, in The Lancet just recently on Medicare for All. And, um, you know, you had a really, really great analysis that uh, showed that um, we would be saving 68,000 lives a year. We'd be saving industry $100 billion, um, saving a tremendous amount of money as a society on healthcare if we were to move to Medicare for all. And um, I thought that was uh, incredible work. What do you think the impact um, of having Medicare for all right now might be on our ability to, uh, to deal with this pandemic? I think it would make a huge difference. We, compared to all the other countries being affected, we are the only country that's not guaranteeing health care to the people living in our country, which mm. means that without 
diagnosis without um, uh, without treatment for mm. for people, our case fatality rate and our rates of transmission will be exacerbated. If everyone had access to health care, then I, I think we may not be in the at the point mm. that we are. And and you know what what do you think it would mean for? Um, our um, health system's capacity? Because, of course, people will point and say, well, you know, we see in Europe all these these societies have some sort of universal health care system, many of whom have nationalized health insurance plans, but they're not ready for it. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you think Medicare for All would mean for our capacity here? Well, if we had Medicare for All, I think we would have actually greater capacity. We would be spending our um, money in the healthcare system more efficiently, so getting more out of the system. We probably would have more people diagnosed at this point, um, and that would have the effect of flattening the curve. So ironically, without universal healthcare, we actually need even more capacity to deal with inevitably more cases. Mm. So not, not addressing it on the front end is means that we're going to have to pay a lot more on the back end. Exactly. And right now yeah. we have little fixes that, um, okay, that, that, that testing will be covered, um, but not treatment. So testing for, and if you're positive for COVID-19, okay, that's covered. Okay. But you're not, what if you're, you're actually, you're negative for COVID-19, but positive for flu that that's not free then it's, it's, it's really perverse incentives. Yeah. That we're arguing, okay, this one, this one infectious disease that's yeah. covered, but none of the rest of the infectious diseases are covered. We, this, this is this is just highlighting that all these infectious diseases. We're most concerned about the COVID nineteen right now, but many people die from the thousands of people die from the flu every year, um, and the same principles apply. So yep. to to mitigate the burden of all infectious diseases would be benefited by having diagnostic and uh, treatment covered for everyone so that they weren't fearful to go to the healthcare system that's and right. receive a, a higher bill. And that's the that's a challenge right now is that um, you've got folks who are experiencing a fever and a dry cough, which are symptoms that people have learned to ignore for a long time because they're worried about the bill. And now you tell them, well, look, if it's COVID-19, you're going to be covered. But they're now playing the odds. They say, well, what if it's not COVID-19? Do I have to pay the bill? And then they potentially choose not to go because they don't have the money for it. And so your, your point is exactly right. I, a lot has been made about, um, about the, the, the inaccessible testing kits, which is just a, you know, a major um, failure uh, to have responded to this in a timely fashion. Um, if you... Uh, all of a sudden could snap your fingers and you could deploy um, uh, an inexhaustible numbering of, of testing kits into uh, the world right now. How would you use them and where are they most effective? Well, at this point, we probably have so many cases in the U.S. Contact tracing is no longer feasible. Um, you know, originally, when you when you first have an outbreak of a novel disease, you want to do contact tracing, identify the chains of transmission, and um, diagnose all the contacts and the contacts of contacts, and you can um, clamp down on the disease that way. That was done for um, Ebola, that was done for SARS, um, and, and those strategies worked. But once you've really lost control of 
of a virus as I think we more or less have now, there's community transmission. I think contact tracing has has become infeasible because we had such a lag in the 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 testing kits, um, which is is really it was shameful, you know. And 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 the in our arrogance as Americans, the WHO offered testing kits to the U.S. and the U.S. We said no, no, no. We can we can do it better, and we didn't accept their their offer of testing kits. And so meanwhile, other countries have a, a surplus of testing kits and we are lagging shamefully behind. Mm-hmm. So if we had the testing kits that we needed now, though, you know, it seems like testing is being focused on, you know, symptomatic people to decide whether or not they have COVID or something else. It seems to me, though, based on what we discussed earlier, that you have a number of people who are asymptomatic carriers and therefore spreaders. And the best use of the testing kits would be to identify them and to isolate them. Um, what do you think is the best use of, 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 of testing kits now while we know that you know, our ability to contrast trace is so limited? How would you use them now? If we knew everyone who was infected, whether or not they were asymptomatic or not, we could ask them specifically to stay home. Um, if, for instance, a healthcare worker has come into contact with a patient and um, we think they they might be exposed if we can test them and they actually are not infected, then they can go back to work. Otherwise, we've we've lost that that person. Um, they you know need to remain quarantined when they could be treating other people. Um, so it, it I mean, of course, it would be extremely helpful if we knew who was infected and asked them to stay at home. And then people who weren't infected um, could still be contributing to um, the healthcare system and our, just the functioning of our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, extremely helpful, and I really appreciate, Allison, you coming on. Can you tell us what you're doing to, um, uh, to, to, to pass this time? Um, well, uh, fortunately, f- we can do a lot of our work remotely, so we use computers and we don't need a wet lab. So I'm still able to continue that work, and there have been lots of conference calls uh, about response strategies and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and you and your family are doing well? Yes. I deeply appreciate you sharing your insights and your work. Um, that's Professor uh, Allison Galvani at Yale School of Public Health. Really grateful uh, for you taking the time to join us. Thank you. That was Professor Allison Galvani, an infectious disease modeler and professor at Yale University. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. As I told you earlier, the trajectory of our epidemic in the U.S. is steeper than Italy's was when Italy had as many cases as we do right now. That means that our doubling time, the amount of time it takes for the number of cases to double, is quite short, at about two and a half days. With the physical distancing measures we've seen across states, will it slow it down? Second, our frontline healthcare providers need more PPE. Industries around the country are starting to answer the call. Will they be able to get enough protection out to the brave women and men who are serving patients across the front lines right now? Third, the economic consequences of COVID-19 are getting more dire by the day. Will Congress act fast to put money in people's wallets so they can make rent and pay their utilities and put food on the table for their families? Those outcomes are particularly dire for marginalized people. People in jails, in prisons, or in detention centers on the border, they can't physically distance, leaving them at particular risk and all of us the worst off for it. 
Where is the action for them? Lastly, Americans are adjusting to life under quarantine. How are you coping? Tweet or Instagram me at Abdul El Sayed with your best quarantine stories, and I just might share them on our next episode. That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. I'll see you on Friday with another update and a special guest. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Huguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 